electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I have not been to any of those shows, uh, Dom. I don't know. I, don't I know haven't either. either. Okay. There's two of us. So there's two more potential customers. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. A trifecta of headwinds hitting the consumer. It's not just student loans. Diane Swank is here with what demographic challenges she's seeing, but why she also says a rate hike in November is still very much in play. Plus, Mark Mahaney pins it to win it. He sees a 35% rally ahead for Pinterest shares. He'll join us to make his case. And one stock that could turn out to be a winner from the new Barbie movie. And it's not Mattel or Cinemark, which both got positive analyst commentary today. The name and the reason why is just ahead. First, though, let's start with today's markets, which I'm going to say it until I'm great. Yeah. They, they look pretty familiar. They, they look pretty familiar. And another high for the year, uh, wow. Kelly, as always. So, again, green across the screen. It wasn't like that all day, but we were marginally lower at one point. Uh, to, but to Kelly's overall picture here, it has been decently higher, and the momentum has been slowly to the upside for quite some time now. The Dow Industrial is up 320 points, almost one full percent there. The S&P 500, 45.43. So we keep going more and more above that 4,500 mark. We're up about 20 points, one half of 1%. And the Nasdaq Composite up 66 points, about one half of 1% as well. 14,311 the last trade there. One place you want to kind of keep a close eye on is what's happening with the Dow Jones Transportation Index and one of the ETFs that generally tracks that transport trade. This particular ETF, the ticker IY the iShares Dow Transports ETF is up 2% right now. More importantly, this is a high going all the way back to April of last year. Some folks like to look at this transportation trade as a maybe indicator, a bellwether for the overall economic health of this country and maybe even the world. So if you do believe the transports are that leading indicator, it might lend yourself to some of that kind of talk about whether this market has legs. We'll see if that pans out. And then One other place to watch, the second best performing sector so far today in the entire S&P 500 is the financials. And and maybe no surprise why. Earnings reports driving a lot of that positivity. Bank of America, 4.5%. Morgan Stanley, near 6% gains. PNC, it was a mixed earnings report for them, by the way, still up 2.5%. BNY Mellon up 4%. And Charles Schwab up 12.5%. All of these earnings stories, Bank of America, better net interest income, Morgan Stanley, record wealth management, PNC Financial, Boney Mellon, and then Charles Schwab, by the way. Kelly, this is interesting. It was a beat. Deposits actually fell sequentially, quarter over quarter, and were down 31% over the same time last year. But management at Schwab thinks they could be on pace for deposit growth by the end of the year, and that might be behind some of that positive sentiment. By the way, Kelly, Charles Schwab far and away the best performing stock in the S&P today. I'll send things back over to you. 12% pop, some huge moves for the financials today. Dom, thanks. Meanwhile, retail sales were a bit softer than expected in June, but still positive, while home builders' confidence did climb for the seventh straight month and hit a one-year high. My next guest is staying focused on the consumer, though, where she sees a trifecta of headwinds that still may not be enough to prevent more Fed rate hikes. Let's bring in Diane Swank, KPMG's chief economist, along with our very own senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Welcome to both of you. Diane, kick things 
things off for us? Because we've heard a lot about, you know, student loans coming due and, and that kind of, um, I like how the journal put it the other day, it amounts to a 5% pay cut for, for a lot of workers. But what do you see as the real risks out there? Well, there's a lot of risks, unfortunately. The good news the good news is the resilience of the U.S. economy and the resilience of labor markets. That's by far the most positive news. On the flip side, we're seeing the headwinds start to pick up in terms of everything from those student loans coming due, which we'll start to see in August, I'm sorry, in October, but also a tightening in, in credit conditions. We've seen people now turn down much more readily for everything from car loans to credit card loans to mortgage refinancing. I'm not sure who's doing mortgage refinancing out there and why they would be doing it right now, given the rates we have. But that said, we are seeing those turndown rates pick up and they're at the highest rejection rates on new loan applications that we've seen since 2013 when the data started. That doesn't give us a good sense of whether or not, you know, this is really, really worrisome or just a little worrisome. But I do think it is headwinds in terms of growth going into the fourth in the second half of this year. You know, not to use market terminology, but are you bullish or bearish, Diane, on the economy? Because it's been, you know, more resilient than expected. <sighs> we saw Hatzius yesterday taking his recession odds down to 20 percent. Um, what do you think is going on here? I'm cautiously optimistic um, that we could get a softer landing than I thought was possible. It's never happened, but, you know, never say never in a post-pandemic economy because a lot has been humbling about this post-pandemic economy. So I'm more optimistic than I was that we can get a soft landing. That said, I do think it's really important to remember that there are some kinds of inflation that we're going to see later this fall that I do think the Fed is going to be worried about <clears throat> could reignite some cooling embers. And that's where I won't completely take November off the table. I hope they'll be done in July. But I think the jury is still out on November on whether the Fed thinks they're going to have to raise rates again, given what could be a bit of a reacceleration late in the year Steve, in inflation. You know, the retail sales, it's almost like I don't know if it's worth spending any time on because, you know, we all know about the cardboard box recession. We, we were just, Josh Brown was just talking about Live Nation. We're all talking about this. So I, I don't know. How telling is the, the kind of goose egg we got for core retail sales? Well, I, I was at one of those Live Nation concerts over the weekend in San Francisco <laughs> at Dead & Company. And uh, let me tell you, there were like 50 or 60,000 fans out there who uh, didn't see a recession. They saw a lot of uh, Grateful Dead music is what they saw. And they were buying hot dogs and beers and all kinds of things. It was a little crazy. Um, but here's the thing. Um, I, I would acknowledge Diane's headwinds, but also point out that, you know, planes land all the time into headwinds. Um, and it doesn't stop them from landing. Sailboats go forward into headwinds. Depends on how you, you know, you, you jigger the mast there, so to speak. Um, so what I would point out, and I think Diane would acknowledge this, is another aspect of what's going on is that real earnings are positive at this point. And we had one of the biggest bumps in, in real weekly earnings that we've had, uh, that's inflation-adjusted earnings, we've had in a while. So against those headwinds, which I acknowledge, and they're real, and especially the one about the Social Security payoffs running off, the student loans, all of those are true, but there are offsets to those headwinds. There's an engine out there, and it has proven to be resilient. And I've been in the no recession camp for a while, just as well as I monitor Kelly, as you know, all the time, the economist forecast. Mm -hmm. And all they can do at this point is to push ahead their forecast for when that recession begins. 
and, and how strong growth is in the second quarter is both objective and subjective. And it's objectively weak relative to, say, trend, but it's subjectively strong relative to the recession that had been planned. So um, I'm seeing a forecast of one and a half to two and a half percent. But guess what? It's on the right side of the zero line. It has a whole number in front of it. And that's way better than many expected for this quarter. Diane, you're also quarter. keeping an eye on the strikes. Why is that? <clears throat> Well, the strikes are, there's a, a huge number of strikes. One, there's UPS strikes, a UAW potential strike. Those are just potential strikes. And then the SAG strike. And the SAG strike, although it doesn't affect as many as the 160,000 people who are covered by the um, SAG contracts, it does include a lot of spillover effects in Hollywood, which is over 457,000 people that work in the movie and production industry directly. And then there's the indirect spillovers as well. And we we won't see the effects of that unless this lasts for a really long time, and we won't begin to see it until after that first week, first full week in August, which is the week of the survey week for the employment data, which is right before the Fed meets in September. And I think it's very hard for the Fed, given the kind of noise we're going to see, some of those things to be in the middle of thinking about raising rates any further. I also think the Fed wants to get more news on the cooling inflation. And I think July is going to come in another good number on inflation. I worry about the end of the year, we're starting to see some reversal. We'll start to see some reversal in the medical care costs. That was a major driver of inflation in the 1990s and for many decades, as a matter of fact. And that picking up again could be something that the Fed, especially in the service sector outside of shelter, that would be something the Fed would be very concerned about. Is this all pickleball's fault again, Diane? Are you a pickleballer? I'm not a pickleballer. I'm probably the only one on the planet, and I don't have any sprained wrists. <laughs> I, I still run every single day, and so I run 30 to 40 miles a week. But, wow, um, do you really? You know, I, maybe I just don't have the... Yes, I do, really. Oh, wow. How do you is, think I got through cancer? I ran. Amazing. No, you <laughs> are. Let me tell you. Like, every day I wake up and I think my life is hard, and I go, you know what? I think Diane. I think Diane's, uh, you know, she's toughing it out more than anybody. you got a lot more kids than I do, Kelly. You've got, you got a lot more to juggle on. I've got only two, and they're adult children. Now, although you know they never, you never stop being yeah, a mom. But, I'll take um, their help. But uh, I do think the U.S. Yeah, the economy, you know, I am more optimistic than I was, and I'll acknowledge that. I mean, Steve's more right than I was right now, and I absolutely lean into that. Um, and I would be glad and happy, absolutely, to be wrong on, you know, the bumpy parts of the soft landing. I still think there are some bumpy parts of the soft landing, but he's right. You can still land a plane, and I've been on some of them that weren't very pleasant. Kelly, there were a couple things in this report that uh, the retail report that made me uh, a little concerned. I'm not really sure what to make of them. For example, gas station sales went down. People thought they were going to go up. Car sales went down. People thought they were going to go up. Yep. I wonder uh, maybe if those come back in the second quarter. So I'm not sure we're getting the truest read on what's happening. I think a general idea is the consumer has yet to give it up. And if Diane is right, and by the way, the only reason I'm right is because I've been had the, the uh, luxury of listening to Diane's economic analysis over many decades and learned from that. But the, 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 key, the key thing here is that um, uh, um, as inflation comes down, 
earnings power gets restored. Now, we're not going to go back to the price levels we had before, and people may never be happy or won't be happy for a long time till they adjust to current price levels. I don't think we're talking about rolling back the current price level. That is not an objective of the central right. bank. It's a discussion perhaps for another day. But the key here is that as inflation goes down and if wage rates stay relatively robust, their wage gains, that means that people's earnings power will be restored. The extent to which that's an offset to the headwinds that Diane laid out, that really is the question as to for the economy in the months ahead. Yeah, no, I was thinking about it with, you know, 40 percent uh, hikes over at United and all the rest of it. Uh, quickly, Diane. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. The, the sustainability of wage hikes are dependent, too, on productivity growth. We've not had a lot of productivity growth, although the fact that we have less churn in the labor market today than we did mm -hmm. and less uh, and more people staying in the jobs i think that could actually boost it a little bit mm -hmm. and that might be one of the arguments in favor of that steve and i i certainly lean into that and hope i think on that Diane, front. we also see Diane, a lot I've more been, people I've, I've been on this i've been on this train for a little while i think a big productivity boost we hired an awful lot of people very quickly um, and it's very hard to have them be productive when they all join like they did uh, something like two million yep. new workers in the workforce here, they're going to get trained up and they're going to be productive because that's what the American worker does. All right. If they're well, not on strike. We will leave it or when they're and not. That's, and, that's, and then on that, we can agree. <laughs> so. Diane Swong, Steve Leisman, thank you both very much for your time today, as always. We really appreciate it. My next guest is also sticking with this rally, but he believes the laggards will now start to make a comeback. He says the mega cap outperformance we've seen is not sustainable over the rest of the market. Joining me now is David Katz, CIO of Matrix Asset Advisors. David, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Nice to be here. You know, I'm all for the rotation. It feels like a natural part of the rally broadening out. But I worry if, you know, however many $7 trillion of market cap stalls out, what does that really mean uh, for the whole index? Well, basically, through May 31st, you had the uh, Magnificent Seven doing spectacularly. The market was flat. Since that time, so since June 1st, the broad market has rallied and kept pace with the Magnificent Seven. And in fact, the equally weighted S&P 500 is ahead of the S&P 500 on a cap-weighted basis over the last month and a half. We think that that's going to continue. You can't have the mega cap, uh, Magnificent Seven, continue to do as great as they have there. Many are fully priced now, but a lot of the market right now is still attractively priced at 16 times earnings. And there are a lot of things out there that are 12 or 13 times earnings. The financial started earnings season out a little bit better than expected. You've seen a number of those stocks bounce. Uh, we think there's a lot more left over the next six to 12 months in that area. So you like financials. Give us some names that are emblematic of where you think the laggards are now going to start to catch up. Well, healthcare has been miserable this year. We think that's going to be a good place to be. So companies like Pfizer and Medtronic, we think, are due for a very significant bounce. You're getting them at about 10 to 14, 15 times earnings with a good yield. Uh, Morgan Stanley reported today. Bank of New York reported today. They had surprisingly good numbers and a little bit better than expected outlook. So both stocks have jumped a lot today, but they're still pretty inexpensive. And if we're right, that financials catch up, they have a lot more on the upside to go. And look at Morgan Stanley. Like you said up 6% today. BNY Mellon up 4%. Um, you also mentioned a name like Qualcomm. Uh, there's a couple others in here. And, and for people who say, well, you know, can I have it all? Why not? Would you be worried about the performance of mega cap tech? 
we don't think that it's going to crap out, but we definitely don't think it's going to be a repeat. So now is not the time to be throwing money at this year's biggest winners. In terms of Qualcomm, we do think that technology is going to continue to be a good place to be. We think Qualcomm is a second derivative artificial intelligence play. We think that inventories are getting much more in check in terms of cell phones. Uh, they also participate in automobiles and industrial. And we think you're getting it at 12 times earnings and about uh, two and a half, three percent yield. So this is one that you can buy. It hasn't participated in the rally. We think it's going to catch up over the next year. All right. Well, I won't ask you for your Barbie plays. We'll save that for a later segment. David, thanks for your Absolutely. time today. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. You too. David Katz with Matrix. Coming up, the new Barbie movie is tracking for a $100 million opening weekend. And Mattel and Cinemark are both called out by analysts today as positioned to benefit. But there's one under-the-radar stock play that could also be getting a boost. You're looking at the chart right now. We have the name and the reason why straight ahead. Plus, Evercore's Mark Mahaney sees a 35% rally in Pinterest from here. What makes him so bullish? He'll join us to make his case. As we head to break, here's a quick check across the markets. We have the Russells leading the way again today up 1%. The Dow gained just shy of that, helped by some strong results in the financials. It's up 327 points. Half percent rises for the S&P and NASDAQ, 45.47 for the S&P. Credit Suisse just hiked their year-end price target to 4,700 from 40.50. The 10-year note below 380. The exchange is back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Barbie movie hits theaters on Friday, and it's on track to bring in 80 to $100 million its opening weekend, about twice the initial estimates. And while Mattel is an obvious name that could benefit, my next guess is pointing to one under-the-radar stock that could get a boost as well. 10X Trades uh, got, got it right on Twitter again. It's five below. The discount retailer already up about 12% so far this year. Here with more is David Bellinger, Senior Analyst and Executive Director at Roth MKM. It's good to see you, David. Welcome. Hey, Kelly, thanks for having me back. You know, I mentioned that Five Below is up 12%, which means it's lagging. The S&P is up 17%, you know, so uh, far from this already being priced in, it sounds like they could use a little bit of a catalyst. Yeah, I'd agree with you. Uh, Five's been up nicely this year, but like you mentioned, a little behind the broader market. And and look, I, I think this Barbie release could be a nice near-term positive. Uh, like you said, the movie was initially projecting for this 50 to $60 million opening weekend. Now that's pushing closer towards $100 million. I, I think if we get into that that sort of level, you, you typically see you know, a nice pop in five bull shares in the 
Yeah. You had mentioned that actually they, this is not an accident. They've had a strategy of buying IP for a lot of these movies. They've had other examples. Super Mario Brothers, I think, was one of them. Um, so this is a is it worth I, I have to imagine it doesn't come cheap sometimes to score these rights. Yeah, so, so Five Below, they've got this great growth trajectory here, right? So 1,400 stores right now on their way to 3,500. So they're, they're, in, in, they're basically their su suppliers have, have allocated them a lot of great product. They, they give them nice margins around it, and they want to be part of this growth trajectory, right? This has many, many years to come. The, the company is only about 40% towards their long-term growth target. So You've got these suppliers investing in five and getting them great product in the process. Yeah, you also mentioned, you know, Barbie aside, whatever people think of the movie or whether, you know, this trend is overblown. They've got, you know, exclusive product from social media influencers. They've got, you know, prime hydration drink backed by Logan Paul, Bluetooth speakers priced at 20 to 25 dollars. So let me go back. And, and five below fines is a huge hashtag on TikTok. So why is the stock not? You know, I don't know. It could be off to the races right now. What's the valuation look like? Yeah, so I'd say over the last few months, five tends to get lumped in with these dollar stores, like a Dollar General, those type of names. And to me, when you peel back, there's definitely a different customer base here, a more call it affluent customer base. And Five Below is really a store of wants versus a store of needs. So I think they got caught up in that trade. But as you think about this this growth algorithm they've got here, you know, the, the stock doesn't screen all that cheap. You're talking about 30 times earnings or higher. But if I look at some of the other names that are sort of these growthier consumer names on my coverage, but you know, the thing, things names like Ulta Beauty, I, I do cover Tractor Supply, Floor and Decor. If you look at their price to earnings multiple in relation to their their growth, this, this peg ratio, those names trade at two times or, or north of that. If you look at five below here, I, I think it's about 1.4 times at last check. So as you dive more into that and just look at where this company can go over time, if that multiple does catch up. You know, I think we could t potentially talk about more of a $300 stock than a $200 one today. Wow. And that's exactly where it's sitting today is 200. So finally, Super Mario, that was almost $150 million opening weekend. Um, but I believe it might have had maybe a PG rating. This movie's not necessarily a kid's movie, as you point out. And we did have a little bit of a disappointment with that Mission Impossible opening last weekend. Yeah, I'd agree with you on both of those. The Mario movie sort of came out of nowhere. And I think Five Below will tell you that you know, they were a bit surprised by that. And based on my checks, you know, there's a lot of Barbie merchandising in the stores today. I feel like they're leaning into this release a little harder. So you might see a nice fundamental bounce here in the numbers over the next few months as you know, this potentially attracts a new customer. Five Below is sort of this you know, home sense for kids, right? You, you never know what you're going to find. There's a great uh, discovery feel to it, sort of that treasure hunt, and it keeps customers coming back and, and spending for, for years to come. Yeah, no, we have certainly been among them. David, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. David Bellinger on Five Below. Still ahead, Canada just made it easier for skilled U.S. visa holders to leave and work up there instead. We have the details on this new program and the potential fallout on U.S. businesses and the economy. Plus, home builder sentiment rising for the seventh straight month, but there's one surprising thing builders are cutting back on. We'll tell you what it is ahead. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with Microsoft leading the way, up 5% and on pace to close at a record high after the company announced new AI features for some of its products, a $30 a month pricing boost for customers who want access to that. Analysts are loving it. Uh, Honeywell and Visa, meantime, are your last. We'll be right back here on The Exchange. 
Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. A cluster of home builders hitting 52-week highs earlier today, although only KB and Toll are holding on to those gains right now after home builder sentiment came in at its highest level since June of last year. Diana Olick here with more and with some details on what they're not doing right now as well, Julia. <laughs> Julia, <laughs> Diana. That's right, Kelly. Yeah, the nation's home builders continue to see improvement in their market, but they're warning about higher interest rates and that impact ahead. So home builder sentiment rose one point in July to 56 on the National Association of Home Builders Index. The street was looking for a little bit better at 57, but this is the seventh straight month of gains and the highest level since June of last year. Anything above 50 is considered positive. Now, builders say low supply in the resale market is driving demand to new construction, but higher mortgage rates and high costs for materials materials continue to put pressure on potential sales. The average rate on the 30-year fixed crossed over 7% recently and has only come down slightly in just the last week. Some are now saying 7% is the new normal. Of the index's three components, current sales conditions in July rose 1.62. to Sales expectations in the next six months fell two points to 60, and that's where interest rates and affordability are having that effect. Buyer traffic, though, increased three points to 40. That was the highest reading since June of last year. Now, despite higher mortgage rates, builders are using fewer incentives. Just 22% of builders report cutting prices in July. This is down from 25% in June and 27% in May. Kelly? Wow. Diana, thank you. We appreciate it. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. New details emerging this afternoon about a U.S. soldier now in North Korean custody. A U.S. military spokesman says the soldier willfully crossed the border into North Korea. NBC News confirming the account with three officials, one of whom says the soldier was on a tour of the area when he bolted across the border and that the U.N. command chased him but could not catch him in time. Police found more than 200 guns inside the home of the suspected Gilgo Beach serial killer Rex Howerman. Uh, police commissioner in Suffolk County says investigators found the weapons in a vault downstairs. Investigators also recently searched storage units in the area they say are linked to the investigation. But a police spokesperson said they are not releasing anything further about the items or the evidence seized in those locations. First, Taylor Swift ticket problems, now the Coliseum in Rome. Italy's antitrust authorities are investigating inflated ticket prices to the country's top tourist destination. Tourists are complaining that it is impossible to find regularly priced tickets to Rome's Colosseum because ticket operators are scooping them up in advance and marking them up. Then these companies repackage the tickets as more expensive guided tours. Kelly, yep. that's the story from Rome. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. See you soon. Coming up, that's Rome and now to Canada, where Mounties, maple syrup, and now tech talent. Skilled workers from around the world may soon be flocking up north. What that could mean for the U.S. next. And as we head to break, let's get a check on a pair of restaurant stocks, starting with Cracker Barrel, up 5% after the company announced former Taco Bell executive Julie Fels Messino will be taking over as CEO next month. And Toast popping almost 3% after halftime trader Josh Brown 
said he doubled his position as the shares near a 52-week high. He warned people not to follow the trade if you can't handle volatility, but I just like the headline, Josh Brown buying toast. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. The feverish pace of tech layoffs has cooled from earlier this year and from last year, but the cuts still continue. Binance, Microsoft and Google are just a few of the big names that have all announced cutbacks in recent weeks. And that creates a lot of anxiety for H-1B visa holders, many of whom work in the tech industry and then have just 60 days to find a new job or risk losing their status. But now Canada has launched a new initiative to attract this talent, as well as so-called digital nomads and skilled American workers. Our own Seema Modi is here to give us those details, along with Benjamin Bergen, president of the Council of Canadian Innovators, and Kevin O'Leary, chairman of O'Leary Ventures and a CNBC contributor who is here to react and give us some context. Welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here. Seema, kick things off for us. Well, Kelly, this program is a potential loss for U.S. companies, not to mention our economy. Research from Stilt shows highly skilled immigrants on the H-1B visa program contribute nearly $77 billion to U.S. businesses every year. And advocates say H-1B visa Visa workers play a critical role in fulfilling jobs that native-born Americans simply can't, specifically in science and technology and fields like artificial intelligence, where a new study shows immigrants have founded or co-founded nearly 65% of the top AI companies in the U.S. And according to the Economic Institute, top H-1B employers include Meta, Amazon, Tesla, among others. However, due to the recent layoffs, over 85,000 workers in the U.S., H-1B workers, have lost their jobs from 2022 to date. Putting great stress, I can tell you, on a lot of immigrant families here who have exactly two months to find that new opportunity or risk getting deported. The backlog of green card approvals also a key factor as well. So Canada providing a very attractive option for many who want to now stay in North America. We spoke to venture capitalist Manan Mehta, who invests in immigrants. He says first choice for highly skilled workers is to come to the U.S. If the U.S. doesn't fulfill that choice, people will look elsewhere. Kelly? Seema, thanks. Let's turn to Benjamin Bergen now. How, again, thank you for joining us today to talk through this impact. How big of an impact do you think this program will have? Yeah, so um, it's already actually had a huge impact. Uh, the government announced this a couple weeks ago. It went live um, two days ago, uh, and it's already full. The 10,000 spots that the government had allocated specifically for H-1B visas wow. uh, has already filled up. So uh, I think that this has met uh, sort of every, like, everyone's expectations and then more and then more some you have to keep in mind in Canada there's 250,000 positions in the tech sector that are currently not being filled and so the government really was smart to move quickly on this specific uh, challenge that the U.S. Uh, is facing in terms of some of the large tech companies because this is really going to try and help fill a bit of that gap here in our own domestic economy for finding highly skilled workers that have really some of the you know, most unique and special talents to build sure. the economy of the future. And also we should note that the U.S. process, while it's never been great, seems to have gotten even more mired down the last couple of years. There have been concerns about some fraud in the program. There's just been a lot of backlog from COVID and things like that. So Canada's already hit the 10K worker cap. Do you think they would raise that? I mean, if they have to fill 250,000 positions, why not allow 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people? Yeah, so great point. I think, you know, uh, my office has already reached out to uh, Minister Sean Frazier uh, uh, earlier today, you know, saying, like, let's try and raise this number. Let's try and get that up. So, look, I think Canadians will be looking at this really carefully, and I think the government will be as well. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that's also really great about this program 
is it's 14 weeks or sorry, 14 days uh, in terms of you getting a, an actual determination on whether you can come. And that will allow you to live and work in Canada for a minimum of three years. It also allows you to bring your family as well. So it is a really generous program to try and help attract and bring the best and brightest to this country. And, you know, remind us, Canada has not always had, or maybe you could say it has, had a friendly kind of, or a friendlier approach to immigration. You know, what's the history here and how big of a deal is this? Or do you think it, it just kind of keeps with a different attitude that Canada has generally taken than the U.S.? Yeah, so Canada has a very different lens on immigration, really, than almost anywhere else in the world. We're an extremely welcoming country. Last year, we actually welcomed a million people, uh, our largest number ever, uh, to Canada. Um, and Canadians view growing uh, our people as a really positive sign. And so, you know, this is really just a doubling down on the government realizing that, you know, uh, immigration is actually a strength um, and immigration that is bringing in highly skilled workers is a strength. You know, Forbes magazine published uh, last year that um, of the top 500 unicorn companies, 80% of them have uh, a, a foreign-born uh, yes. leader or someone in their senior leadership. And so, you know, bringing in really talented individuals is definitely uh, a tool that Canada has been using to deploy uh, as an economic stimulus. That's fascinating. Benjamin, thanks. Benjamin Bergen with the Council of Canadian Innovators, which brings us to our grand finale, to the business and economic impact on both countries. And does he just think it's a good idea or not? We turn to Shark Tank's Mr. Wonderful, CNBC contributor and famous Canadian-American, of course, Kevin O'Leary. Kevin, so glad you could be here today. What are your thoughts about this program? So this is a policy error on behalf of the American administration and a chess move of brilliance with the Canadians. It's not just the H1, and this is a personal opinion that I'm going to make here, but watch what happens uh, in graduating classes of engineering cohorts. This is going to happen next. I teach at Harvard, MIT, Notre Dame, Temple, and other colleges as a guest lecturer. And over the last three years, I've noticed that the, the cohorts have been changing dramatically. A lot more women in the classes, but a lot of other people that have met the standards. Let's take MIT, for example. You need almost a perfect math score. The institution doesn't care if you come from a rogue nation. They just want the very best talent in the world, and they get it. Now, after we give them a PhD or a discipline in engineering in MIT, we throw them out of the country. How dumb is that? And so what will happen next? The Canadians will pick them up because they've come here. They don't want to return home. They want to bring their families. They're the best of the best of the best in the world, and we throw them out of America. I see it happen. I watch it happen. It's sheer stupidity. What is the and argument, I think the Kevin? Will it, not, oh, this it, is the O-1 visa program that we haven't implemented properly. The Canadians will also take them. Yeah. So, and, and we should also note the Canadians have kind of changed some of their, what they're doing with higher ed, gone from, I think, having 200,000 to upwards of 600,000 students from foreign countries in the university system and, and leaning on that as well. What are we missing? What, if this seems like such an obvious blunder, what would people say about why the U.S. is either allowing this system to, you know, sort of to, to go in this direction or, or give, what's the more sympathetic take as to why and how we've gotten here? Here's what happened, Kelly. You know, I never make any money on politics. I make money following policy. The narrative of the last administration, immigration policy got tied up in what was happening at the border in Mexico and all mm. those horrific images of families being broken up and people dying as they went over the river and all the rest of that. Immigration policy got tied up in security. 
At the same time, it's the same policy that should be allowing these people that are coming out of our institutions, our educational institutions, to get some way to stay in the country that they want to stay in and they want to work and create jobs and be cutting edge in technology and science, whether it be medicine or digital or whatever it is. But that policy is together. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to separate it. What we need to do in the U.S. immediately is put a task force of O-1 issuance. Now, the H-1 we just talked about, the O-1 is extraordinary individuals. When you identify an extraordinary individual, and I'd argue anybody that graduates with a PhD from MIT sure. is an extraordinary individual, we issue them that O-1 for 36 months. Then we get them a green card for them and their family, and we give them five years through the existing process to become American citizens. We have all that infrastructure in place. We just haven't put the policy in. And I would suggest that the Biden administration put four or five individuals inside of immigration policy to identify the 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 out of every cohort that should stay in America and not go back to where they don't want to go because they are the very best of the very best. This is not a big task. We're talking about individuals one at a time. And these are the next founders of the next Google Absolutely. and the next Microsoft and the next chat GPT right now in our universities. And we throw them back like fish. It's insane. So I guess maybe what we could say is the benefit of Canada moving in this direction is at least it does throw a spotlight on our failures. And, for, you know, I can't imagine maybe it would be a winning campaign slogan for someone to get, you know, Vivek, whatever the, the, the big debate next month. Maybe say, we need more. You know, I don't know if they're ever going to pound the table on it, but certainly I would have to imagine, you know, making some of these changes behind the scenes as we're more aware of our demographic challenges and things like that. It, it, you know, it seems like an obvious place we need to go. I'm thankful you're making this a story. I've been watching it happening now for 36 months. Nothing's more frustrating than leaving a Harvard class and seeing half of those people that should be in this country starting businesses being thrown out. It makes no sense whatsoever. And the only way you change this thing is the old squeaky wheel. Make this wheel squeak and it'll get the oil it needs. Meanwhile, we're very friendly with that's great. They'll just take all the talent. Right. They'll make it very easy. They're going to open up that H-1 program to 50,000 people, I bet, by next week. I would it's have a to genius imagine. move. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. It's really good to get your point on this. Thank you. Kevin O'Leary with O'Leary Ventures. All right, still ahead, the summer travel season has been a bumpy one for the airlines, plagued with staffing shortages, extreme weather. But what do the numbers say? We'll explain the disconnect between frustrated travelers and happy airline investors next. Welcome back. The airline's taking a breather after posting a sharp rally to start the year. Delta down about 2% the past week, for instance, as more than 3,000 flights have been canceled within, into, or out of the U.S. just since Saturday. But has air travel actually been that much worse this summer? Phil LeBeau joins us with the numbers. Hi, Phil. And Kelly, the numbers show that if you just look at New York, and the reason we're focusing just on New York is because it, so much attention last year, there was the reduction in flights from the big four airlines that go into the three airports there. Look what the numbers show us. Since they've reduced those flights, which started on May 15th all the way through July 10th, FlightAware ran the numbers for us, and they show there has been a dramatic drop in cancellations and also a, a sustainable or sizable drop in delays, certainly at LaGuardia and JFK. Keep in mind, as I mentioned, 
we've got American, United, Delta, and JetBlue. They all agreed with the FAA request to bring down their flight schedules into the New York City airports by 10%. And this is coming at a time when we see the number of people flying across the country Back to pre-pandemic levels, almost back to pre-pandemic levels. In fact, when you look at the number of people scanned by the TSA uh, on a regular basis, every single day, the average is 2.2 million. But we should point out that for the month of July, on average, 2.5 million people are flying. So we could see by the end of the year that we are back at 2019 levels. We're not quite there yet, but it could be there by the end of the year. This comes as we see the airlines reporting their earnings. We got Delta last week. We will have United after the bell tomorrow. And then on Thursday, before the bell, we will hear the results from American Airlines. Expect something similar to what we heard from Delta. Very strong revenue. And if not the best quarter for earnings, pretty darn close to that. So that's a, a snapshot, if you will, Kelly, of what we're seeing right now when it comes to cancellations and delays. I know it doesn't always match up with what people are saying in terms of I've had a problem getting into Newark right. or LaGuardia, but the numbers do show that we are seeing fewer cancellations. The LaGuardia numbers are much better. I was shocked that the Newark numbers aren't worse given what happened, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, even, every time I talk to someone who's just right. back from a trip, Tyler just had to go through Baltimore and rent a car. <laughs> you know, I, I am, I, I sort of, you know, I don't want to say I don't believe the figures, but what am I missing? And if the airlines have reduced their schedules by 10%, I don't know. I, I my, my, my response the, here, would be, Here's what you're missing. Kelly, yeah. here's what you're missing. Look, I, a couple of weeks ago, I was on a flight that got canceled because it got caught up in the whole mess with United Airlines. I, I know almost everybody has probably had a similar story out there. The problem is this, because there are fewer flights, when a flight is canceled, they've replaced those flights with larger planes, but mm. almost all the seats are filled. So there's less options for rebooking people. And as a result, when there is a major weather event or something else that causes a bit of a mini meltdown, if you will, there's, it's tougher to get back on schedule. And that's what we saw with United Airlines a couple of weeks ago. So when you hear people saying, I got a flight canceled and I can't get out for a couple of days, yeah, that's that's the environment we're in right now. Almost every seat is sold. So it's very tough to reaccommodate 150, 250 people from a particular flight. All right. Great point. See, now I feel a little bit better informed. <laughs> Phil, thank you. As always, our Phil Bell. Still ahead, Facebook parent Meta soaring this year, up nearly 160%, while Pinterest is up a merely 24% by comparison. But Evercore says it could be at an inflection point. Mark Mahaney joins us to discuss that call next. Welcome back. Shares of Pinterest up 4% today after an upgrade from Evercore ISI. In fact, Pinterest is only about a percent below its 52-week high right now. Analyst Mark Mahaney laying out the four reasons he's bullish, including a recovery in digital ad spending. He sees 35% uptrust in pins from here. Let's bring him in. Mark, it's great to have you back. Welcome. Hey, Kelly. Digital advertising, since this applies to much more than Pinterest, let's just start there with the positive trends you're seeing. Well, some companies are seeing it more than others. Meta clearly is, but there's a couple of very specific uh, company-specific product cycles behind that name. If we look out across digital advertising, it's just tentative evidence that brand and performance marketing is starting to pick up in the back half of the year. Those online retail data points this morning from the Department of Commerce, I, I thought those were actually kind of incrementally positive. So if that occurs, if we have kind of this sustained sort of improvement, because there's no doubt about it, online re online advertising demand has been depressed year to date. Mm -hmm. But as that starts to improve, 
you'll get names like Pinterest that should fundamentally participate in that. Yeah. And why does this one in particular jump out to you? Is it because it had been left behind or, you know, do you see more kind of particular things that they could really benefit from? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's also been a lot that the company's done. So one, they need the macro environment to improve. That was the first reason behind the upgrade. We think there's some tentative evidence of that. But also we've had a management team and it usually takes a new CEO, you know, at least a year to really kind of start fi fixing things and getting things in the right direction. We've seen under we've seen under CEO Bill Reddy a series of improvements, product improvements that have actually caused user growth to improve and engagement time that's spent per user to improve. And there's been a couple of nice improvements they made on the advertiser side, too, that I think has started to unlock more spend. So as those two things come together, the kind of the macro environment and then the company specific initiatives, you have the setup for the third reason behind the upgrade, which is this fundamental inflection point, which I always like in stocks. It's accelerating revenue growth and expanding margin. And I think valuation is reasonable at these levels. Those are the four reasons why we upgraded a stock. Why are they at an inflection point? And, and I always, not always, I, I love Pinterest and I've used it for over a decade, just kind of sporadically. But my biggest frustration is one of the things that people for years have said they're about to do, which is, ironically, I wish they would make it easier for me to buy the things that I like. So I'll see something on there, you know, a cool mirror, a rug, whatever. And other than a couple of obvious brands, which I'm not interested in, it's very hard to find what actual product is being featured. And every time I hear people say they're going to roll out the shopping, they're rolling, but they, they never really do. Every time I get on there, I feel like it's the same old experience. Well, hopefully it's improved. Uh, you know, you're talking about the, the guts of this is all about product improvement. That's what Bill Reddy, I hope, and the team he brought in, I hope, is really starting to lay out at Pinterest. So the, the idea of shoppable pins, kind of getting more uh, commerce on the site. And remember, this is not your day-to-day -day online retail experience. This is project-driven. People go on to Pinterest to kind of run projects, whether that's yes. redesigning a backyard or a home uh, you know, uh, categories like fashion and uh, and beauty are major uh, on these. And maybe getting into travel, that's what I've sort of find myself using it for. Hmm. But those projects, the extent that they lead to inspiration and then they lead to purchases, the extent that they can close the loop on that, there's a really interesting and it's a unique side to Pinterest. It's kind of this visual search experience that, yes. you know, the, the, and it, the advantage of Pinterest is, by the way, it's a tiny company. I mean, they do $3 billion in ad revenue. That's pretty tiny. And so when you get these turns on these businesses, they don't just go up to 10% or 15% revenue growth. They can be a lot better than that. That's not priced in. That's not mess, not estimated in. So I just find this risk reward really highly asymmetric to the upside. Sure. No, I, I love it. Before I let you go, and because we have time and because you're Mark Mahaney, I just got to ask you quickly about Netflix. <laughs> Before, you know, we are about to hear from the company. Uh, you're bullish, uh, although I think the price target is maybe lower than where the shares are now. People think it'll be a good quarter kind of for bad reasons because of the writer's strike. Just give me a thought on that one. No, I think it's going to be, it better be a really good quarter. I'm a little cautious about Netflix going into the print. I, our pitch is we'd rather buy it after the print than before the print. These two major initiatives in terms of cracking down on password sharing and rolling out an ad-supported service, they have been, I think they're going to end up being huge home runs. It'll take a little bit of time, but I think they really will. The, the only question is why didn't they implement these a few years ago? Mm -hmm. But that's the past. I think there's a great, you're going to have fundamentals improve, and then we're past peak competition it, it, near term, I guess the writer strike, you know, and the actor strike probably helps Netflix relatively, but it's not a good thing for the industry as a whole. It just right. isn't. Anyway, I like Netflix. I think that it's not as compelling as it was at the beginning of the year. So it's a small buy for me. I prefer Uber. I prefer Amazon. I prefer Meta. And Pinterest. Mark, thanks so much. It's and good Pinterest, to have you yes. on today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Mark Mahaney with Evercore ISI. That does it for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.
From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 